If you would, again, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12 as we continue our study there. Hebrews 12, and I will read verses 1 through 11. We'll be focusing on verses 7 through 11 this morning. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline That you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So we need to remember what we're talking about and where this passage occurs in the context of Hebrews specifically. As I read with verses 1 through 3, the exhortation primarily is to look to Jesus, to behold Him as we run this race, fight this war, struggle in this struggle that we are called to do, the race that is set before us. This is God's will. It is is His wisdom that we would live in this way. And we can only do so by looking to Jesus. That is the only way that we will be able to persevere in faith through this long, arduous trial that He has called us to, known as the Christian life. Regardless of what people tell you on television or on the radio, what God has called you to is difficulty. It is an arduous, difficult trek, as we looked at several weeks ago, or it is a very perilous journey, or it is a very high-stakes struggle with lives and soul at risk. And the only way that we are going to endure is by looking to Jesus. And further, it's not just by beholding Him directly. God deals directly in our lives through discipline. 
to prepare us for this fight and this struggle so that we may endure. So remember the point. It's all about Christ. It is pointing us to Christ. Jesus is the champion of the gospel. He's the one, this is the same word used for forerunner. It could be translated champion. He goes before us. He cuts the trail. He blazes the trail, as it were, and he completes it before we even get started. He's there at the finish line, having triumphed for us guiding us towards him. And he also uh, exemplifies the life of trust that we need to have in, in order to endure. He is the man of faith. Jesus is more than anyone else. And he trusts God even through the abandonment he experiences on the cross. Even as God has to abandon him in that moment, it's called the dereliction. If you want to read more about that, He yet prays to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still trusts in God, even in that moment. And none of us will have to be abandoned like that. So we can look to Jesus as the preeminent example of one who trusts God. He's the champion of the gospel. He's also the cornerstone of the gospel. Without his work... Without him doing what he did on the cross for us, there is no good news. God, one day bringing justice, does bring happiness and joy to my soul. But if it were not for the work of Jesus, that day would not go well for me or for you at all. He's the cornerstone of the gospel. There's no good news without his work on the cross to reconcile sinners. In his being rejected, he has become the very cornerstone. Jesus endured the wrath of God in our place, the rejection of all the people, and the abandonment of God the Father himself to reconcile you to himself. That is the gospel. If you believe in him, you are forgiven of all of your injustices and freed from everything that the law could never free you from. That is what Jesus does in the gospel. He's the cornerstone. He's also the point of salvation. He's not just the champion. He's not just the cornerstone. He is the goal of the gospel. And we can get stuck thinking that Jesus and his work, uh, that he's mainly just the means of salvation. And he is, but he's not just that. He is the means of salvation. He says that no one comes to the Father except through me. But he's also the goal God does not create a plan of salvation and then just because he's a heavenly curmudgeon make the door narrow in Jesus. He's the point of salvation. Think of it this way. In eternity past, God planned to send Jesus to save you so that you would worship him in Jesus forever. That's the plan. He's the point of salvation. Jesus is the one who saves you, and he is the one you are saved for. You're saved for his fame and glory, for making him preeminent. You can read about this in Colossians 1. And what this sounds like, as we've mentioned multiple times in this series, as we've gone through this idea of looking to Jesus as we run the race, what this looks like in your mundane life and in my mundane life is to seek to gain Christ, that everything we do... 
reverse engineering it as far as we need to, is in some way fixed on the point of gaining Christ in our lives. Where we choose to go to work, where we choose to live, where we choose to go to church, the hobbies we encourage, the things we do with our friends, it should be in some way detectable how you're going to gain Christ in that. And if not, be done with it. That's what it means to lay aside every weight. It is for this great purpose, centered on the person of Jesus, as we focus on Him as our goal, the way that He really deserves, that it becomes apparent that if you cherish your sin, you can't cherish Jesus the way you should. If He's the goal of salvation, then these Weights and sins mentioned in verse 2 prevent you from seeing Jesus as the goal. You won't cherish, the way, cherish Jesus the way you should if you're holding on to your sin, if you're letting it fester in your heart. So discipline, this is the point of these verses that we're covering, trying to set it all up. Discipline. Specifically, the discipline of the Lord drives the folly of sin out of your heart. Just like the old hymn says, For thee all the follies of sin I resign. That's the point. And God is disciplining us. He's chastising us, as we looked at last week, so that we would abandon the folly of sin in our hearts or else we won't cherish Christ. And so in verse 7, we covered this last week, but we're picking up with it again because it is the most crucial piece. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So consider these things. This word, sons, God is treating you as sons. We mentioned last week that that word can stand for daughters too, so ladies, you're not left out. Don't worry. The idea is that we're all sons in the sense that we all have an inheritance. We'll get to that in a little bit. It is astonishing to be adopted by God. We are considered, through Christ, sons of God Some have even called adoption the greatest blessing of salvation. And maybe it is proper to speak of it that way. But know this, being a son or daughter of God is not an end in itself. You are not adopted just to hang out as sons or daughters, and that's it. You are adopted for some greater reason. You don't just become a son or daughter of God and then the story is over. Otherwise, there would be no need of discipline because you'd already be a son or daughter. Story's over. But no, God disciplines every son he receives. And at the risk of running to the Apostle Paul to explain everything, because all of us can do that, I think, I do want you to go to this one place to see this very clearly, that there is a greater purpose even than adoption in your salvation. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Should be a very familiar passage to you. Romans 8, 17. 
I'll start actually in verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that... That is a causal phrase. You should circle that or have it at least circled in your head. In order that we may also be glorified with Him. The point of sonship, the point of being adopted, the reason God is treating His sons and daughters this way with discipline is because you just merely being saved or merely being a son or daughter of God, not that those are small things, is for something greater. It's for glory. And not just the glory of God. Look at it very closely. In order that we may be glorified with Him. Are you comfortable speaking of your relationship with God that way? That what God is about, the business that God is about in my life, is one day glorifying me along with or in Jesus That's astounding, and it is uncomfortable even to speak that way, but that is what it's saying. He is dead set on glorifying you in His Son as He glorifies the Son above all. This is your destiny if you're in Christ. And this is why discipline is necessary. None of us are ready for that day quite yet. And this is how the two relate. The work of God to glorify us with Christ can only happen when we cherish Christ inexpressibly and hate our own sin violently. I'll say that again. It's very important. The work of God to glorify us with Christ can only happen when we cherish Christ inexpressibly And hate our own sin violently. The way God treats us as sons and causes us to share in the sufferings of Christ, just like Paul said, provided we suffer with him, is by discipline. It's not left to happenstance, random cause and effect happening in your life to bring sufferings. It is God's intention to glorify you with Christ. So just an encouragement before we continue on. Do you feel that you might be under a heavy hand from heaven? Have you felt tempted to say, God is not in this? Because you think that to see him as in any way involved in your suffering would be unthinkable. Remember what we said last week, that it is not God making your situations any worse than they otherwise would be. In fact, we are spared every day from the consequences of sin in the world and in our own lives. But he is augmenting and editing and altering the circumstance to fit your life and your soul perfectly to prepare you for glory, that moment when we will be glorified in Christ with Him. Even in that framework, though, understanding His mercy at work, maybe you're just really being taken through it. Maybe you're like those in the book of Hebrews itself. All of their stuff stolen. 
Maybe they're about to have to pay with their lives to continue being Christians. But understand, this is the same path. This is the same way that Jesus walked. And we will walk the same path to glory until God graciously allows us to put off this corruption. Maybe we're like Peter, looking back at John as he strolls with the resurrected Christ on the beach. Hey, what about this guy? You've told me I'm going to suffer, but what about all the rest? Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. We must be dead set on following Christ, regardless of the price. Because the way to glory is through the sufferings of Golgotha, not just for Jesus, but for us too. And if life seems like one long, stretched out road to Calvary, take heart. God is treating you as sons, as daughters. So this is leading to something in a few verses. The author of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The discipline at work in your life isn't just because God is capricious. He wants you to share His holiness. He wants you to see Him, to be with Him, to be glorified with Him. And this way of discipline, this arduous trek, this difficult struggle is the way. It is the only way. Verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So notice the logic of this passage. This is an if-then statement. If you don't have discipline, if you're not experiencing discipline, then you're not a son. You're an illegitimate child. Conversely, it can work both ways. So if you're under discipline, you can safely assume that you are a son. That's the the way the logic works. If you're under discipline, experiencing discipline of the Lord, it produces in us, and this is part of the point of the message, it produces in us assurance that we are, in fact, sons of God, provided we suffer with Him, just like Paul says. These, These mesh quite nicely. But if we don't experience discipline, if we're not under the discipline of the Lord, then we have reason to be very concerned. So contrary to what the prosperity gospel preaches, that God wants you to have a great life always and not be challenged and experience difficulty. Really, if your life looks like that, you have many, many reasons to be concerned that you're not a son or daughter at all. The point of enduring hardship as discipline is in part to grow in our awareness of our status as sons or daughters of God, as children of God. And this is why it is so important to keep your eyes on the goal of seeing the Lord and sharing His holiness. So, when we are aware that we're under the discipline of the Lord, even before it takes its full effect in rooting out sin, we can gain an immediate benefit. Take heart. You're a son or daughter of God. So here's an important question, and I think this is a fair question. You might be wondering this yourself. How do we know if what we are enduring is discipline from the Lord? So if you have a flat tire later on, or you lock your keys in your car, or you get a terrible diagnosis, 
or someone close to you passes away. How do you decipher whether or not this is discipline or this is just something else? It's a very important question. It's an interesting question. At the start of verse 7, it says, It is for discipline that you endure. The NIV renders it this way. We talked about this a little bit last week. Endure hardship as discipline. Which is the positive way of saying, Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Regard your hardship as discipline. In a way, this is the point, I think. In a way, your willingness to look at and perceive and consider your hardship as discipline is one of the most significant proofs of sonship. Why? Because it takes just so much faith to view it that way. It takes so much trust to see your hardship that way. And those who are not born again don't want to view their hardship that way. Only those who have that direct connection to God through the new birth by the Spirit can even begin to be willing to view their hardship as discipline. Only those who are born again will, in the moment of hardship, put their hands over their mouths and be silent, consider their ways, and return to the Lord. That's what a born-again person does. A person who's not born again will point the finger elsewhere or even to God himself. Maybe a little bit like Job. Why are you doing this to me? I didn't deserve this. So be very careful if your heart recoils at the idea of God disciplining you through your hardships. Your unwillingness to regard it that way may very well be proof that you are not a son or daughter of God. God is not the author of evil, and He's not making things more difficult than they have to be. We live in a cursed world, and all of us deserve death, endless suffering, in hell because of our own personal sin. So the way God's providence works in our lives is to use all of that for preparing us for glory. And if you're unwilling to view it that way, maybe you're not a son or daughter Maybe you lack faith altogether, or maybe you've believed lies and those have prevented you from seeing the truth about God's relationship with you. God is treating you as sons. Do you see God's hand at work in your hardship? There's a danger in only seeing God's hand involved in the solution. Something Difficult happens, we're going through it, maybe even we're about to pay with our lives like the people that this letter is written to. And we pray to God, we pray for deliverance, we pray for Him to come and fix it, and what can happen is we begin to think of God like our own personal spiritual fire extinguisher to come into our lives and fix the problems that exist. And maybe he does, and maybe he doesn't, and if he does, then we can really witness and see God's involvement in our lives, but... We don't see his hand at work in the dark providences. Don't restrict God that way. The same thing happens in the Old Testament over and over and over. The elders come to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 14, and Israel's going through a really tough time. 
And God is bringing these oppressions because of their idolatry. And the elders come to Ezekiel wanting to inquire of the Lord. And God says to Ezekiel, should I indeed be inquired of by them? They've got their idols in their hands behind their back. And yet they're coming asking for wisdom from me. I'm going to answer them, but I'm only going to talk about that idol That's how he deals with us, and that's why he brings the difficulty into our lives, so that we will yield up our idols and let him rip them out of our lives, or do so willingly. Has your hardship done enough to bring you to say in your heart, Okay, Lord, I'm listening. What do I need to tear down in my heart? What do I need to be done with? If it has, then it's all been worth it. Last week we talked about the discipline training us for war against sin. He trains us. Discipline is, is uh, thought of as, as this type of training, getting ready, as, even as like a special forces person in the military would get ready for combat. That is what discipline does for us. It gets us ready for this battle. But that's only one side of the story. Struggling against sin is not an end in itself. It is for something. There's a point, there's a purpose in getting rid of sin, and it is not just to get rid of sin out of your life itself. Some of you need to realize that in order to have any real success against sin, that it is not an end in itself. And the rest of this passage shows us what the point of discipline is. Verse 9, besides this, we we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live. So this speaks to some of the fruit of discipline in our lives. And the first thing he does is show some similarities between the discipline of the Lord and the discipline you might have or might not have received in your home. And he's showing similarity by comparison. And he's showing uh, something like this. If this is the case in a lesser example, then it's certainly true of a larger, more important, more weighty example. Jesus speaks this way in Matthew 7. He says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? So, if it is the case that earthly fathers disciplined us this way, how much more will the Father of spirits discipline us as well. And just a a side comment on this. Even if you're not disciplining, you're still disciplining. Everything you do is some sort of training as parents. And the quality of discipline is causally related to the quality of respect. Look at it. We had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. So good discipline produces respect. Poor discipline produces an absence of respect. That's how the passage works and speaks to us parents. So parents, you are training your children. Everything you do is discipline. The only question is, what is your discipline teaching them to do, preparing them for? What is it training them for? Is it for holiness? Is it for submission to the Lord Jesus? 
Or are you training them for wickedness? To continuing to follow the course of this world? You can't escape it. You're training. You're disciplining. It's either good or bad. So earthly discipline, when done right, produces a respectful individual. Is that the effect of our discipline? It says we, we respected them. And the implication is that that's when it's done properly, it produces respect. And spiritual discipline, look at the text again. Shall we not be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So it's not just respect in this instance. God disciplines us as the Father of spirits. So spiritual discipline produces life. So the quality of the discipline that the Lord gives us is also causally related to the result. He disciplines us perfectly and it produces life in us. And this is how we can be sure that his discipline will have its perfect, full intended result because he is perfect. He knows exactly how to train us and to better us and to ensure that one day we will, in fact, be perfect. So the first general result of God's discipline is life. And it's implied, it could be implied, perfect life. And beneath that, we'll get to a few other things. We've already talked about assurance as being a result of his discipline. We'll get to a few more here. Just as an exhortation to parents, there will be a few more of these. If you're not training and insisting on your children respecting you, and if you're not living up to any biblical standard of respect yourself, then your children will not be trained or ready to respect the Lord. The way they speak to you or disobey or disregard you is a preview. Not just of how they will treat others, but how they will respond to, speak to, disobey the Lord. Home is a training ground for their relationship with God. And there are similarities to this with being a pastor. We're all given a degree of stewardship. We're entrusted with care of others, you and I will have to answer for the stewardship we have been given in the souls under our care. And no, you don't possess the power to save them, and I don't possess the power to save anyone. But we ought to both strive with all of our might to direct and lead those under our care to the truth with any opportunity we can make And with any opportunity we're given. Does your parenting, does my pastoring look anything like the shepherding care of Jesus over his church? Life hangs in the balance. It's that serious. Verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So, Verse 9 talked about a comparison showing similarities. If our fathers did this, then certainly God will do this. But now we get a comparison that underscores differences. Earthly fathers did this, but God does this. Contrast. So the first contrast is this. As seemed best to them. This is an encouragement to parents, I think, and obviously fathers. We just have... A very short time with our children. And with my oldest, it seems like it's going way too fast. 
It's a short time, and we have a built-in inadequacy, but we should commit to strive to do our very best, as seemed best to them. Am I putting my best into my training and disciplining of my children? And when we fall short, and you will, underscore our inadequacy and point them to the Lord. Yes, I am just a mortal man. All I can do is the best that what seems best to me. I'm limited in knowledge. I'm limited in ability. And this is the best I can do. You need Jesus. And I want to give an exhortation to the young people in this room. Virtually every parent in here, I can't see into their hearts, but I'm assuming and knowing in some cases, many, that they're trying to do their very best. Here's a little secret, young people. Your parents aren't perfect. We're all mortal men and women. But they will even come to this room and listen to me saying things like this and put up with it because they love you and they want you to know the Lord and to be reconciled to God in His Son, Jesus. That's what they want for you. They're doing their best. They're trying Realize that as you live with them and seek to submit to them. So there's a few more contrasts in this passage. Fathers disciplined us for a short time, but the implication is that God disciplines us. It just, it's continuing. It is always. So you only have maybe 18 to 20 years with your earthly parents, but God, if you're a son or daughter of God, is for your entire life. It is always. And another contrast is that it is not what seems best to God, even though that could be said as well, but it is what is always best because God always knows what is best. Our earthly parents can only do so much. They're limited in knowledge. They can only do what seems best to them. But God always does what is best in his disciplining of his children. And there's no graduation. (laughs) There's no going off to college and escaping the discipline of the Lord. If you're a son or daughter, it just keeps going. And that should bring us great comfort, even as the 23rd Psalm says. And why? Why is he disciplining us? we're, We're building up to this. Why? It is to share his holiness. And I wish we had a whole Sunday or longer to discuss this phrase. That we may share his holiness. Maybe one day we will. We talked about this a few months ago in our class on the church. We mentioned that part of what God is doing in in bringing us along into this, this path to glory is that we would share His holiness one day. But sharing, especially as a guy who came with... I have seven siblings. So when you share something with that many people, there's less for you. Okay, But that's not what happens when God shares his holiness because it's not like a commodity for him. It is an essential attribute. It could be said it is, most, it is his most foundational attribute, his pure otherness. He is above, he is different, he's distinct from everything. We were talking about this in our Sunday school class. He's separate, but the call, the summons to every son and daughter in God, of God is to share that holiness. To participate in it. What is holiness? It's not a sliding scale, like something that you can approximate, like like maybe height. That 
You know, there are short people and taller people and giants, and, and uh, so there are people who are less holy, more holy, and most holy. Holiness isn't like that. Not for God. It is, like I said, his full otherness, the fact that there is none like him. So sharing God's own holiness is the aim of redemption. It is the aim of his discipline in your life. Even the aim of sonship, the reason you're adopted into the family of God is to share the holiness of God. So what does this mean? These are very foundational matters. What does it mean to share the holiness of God? And what the humility this brings is when we get to asking, we get to the business of asking these most foundational questions, we realize how limited our knowledge is. To even have, we don't even have the words to speak about these things. What does this mean? God's holiness is his essential otherness. And that leads to his behavior. His holiness in his doing is rooted in his holiness of being. So when we say to share his holiness, we don't mean that we become other like him. We don't become a creator, so to speak, like the Mormons say. What the Bible means is that we will be like Christ through being filled with the Spirit. And again, I wish I had a whole Sunday to discuss this. I'm just skipping over a ton that could be said. But John 17, there are a few statements that they may be in us. I in them and you in me so that they may be perfectly one. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is one of the most basic questions we can ask. What does it mean to share the holiness of God? And yet it defies the limitations of our minds to even fathom. This is the weight of glory. Being so one with God in His Son, by His Spirit, that you share His otherness, His holiness. It is unthinkable, and it is even blasphemous to say if God had not said it Himself. That what He is bringing you into what, what the discipline is for that he puts us under is to share in his own essence. Are you ready to share in all the fullness and glory of the holiness of God? You are not saved just to be eternal recipients of God's goodness and mercy, but to be drawn into the very center of the Almighty. And it starts now. He who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. If that's your goal, if that is your destiny, and you see that and say, yes, I don't understand it. I don't know what all that will mean, but I know that for today, it means holiness in my living. Righteousness. Verse 11, the first part. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It must be. 
Everyone in this room needs to hear this. It must be, in some sense, painful or else it is not discipline. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. If it doesn't seem painful, it's in some sense, it's not discipline. It's not biblical discipline. It is not discipline like the Lord disciplines. And there are many Bible verses we could go to that speak of this regarding children. We don't have time to cover them. I actually have it all here if you want to talk about it afterwards. And it is unpopular to speak of the rod, which the Bible does in many places. And there are 10,000 ways to do it wrong. But just like marriage can be ruined in 10,000 ways, and just like elders of a church can be ruined in 10,000 ways, it doesn't mean that those things aren't the wisdom of God. There is a window of opportunity that must not be wasted with your children. When they're older, when they, are, when they begin to be able to regard your discipline lightly, if it is more physical, then you'll, and if you would have to cross the line into something bad to make an effect, then the window is closed. And you have to use all your creativity and biblical wisdom to pick up the slack. Because that tool is then taken away. So you have to use other methods in many situations, but it must be unpleasant and in some sense painful, or if it's it's not discipline. That's clearly what it says. All discipline seems painful. It doesn't seem painful. It's not discipline. Be careful what you do with your Bible, parents. If mommy and daddy can pick and choose what verses of the Bible to obey, then I guess I can too. And one day, when they want to do any number of things that you in your mind are saying, well, I wouldn't go there, but the habit of rejecting Scripture has been laid out before them as normative, they'll begin to do the same thing. Johnny C., Johnny Do. If we ever get a a Johnny in this church, I'll have to change what I I say there. Like, that's the point, that you you are disciplining them, you're teaching them, you're training them by your own behavior of how you treat the Bible. If you can pick and choose, so will they. For the moment, it seems painful. Whatever method we choose, it should have that sense of momentary, not long and drawn out. Because it hinders reconciliation. That's one of the ways that I would commend biblical wisdom. It's not long and drawn out. Verse 11, the second half. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It is painful in the moment. All discipline is painful. It seems painful in the moment, or else it's not discipline. But, and this is to children in this room and any child of God, it's heading towards this idea of sharing His holiness. We saw some of what that means internally, that we are drawn into the very essence of the Almighty in heaven, but the way that that begins to work itself out now is the desire to be like God, to share His holiness. As I lead my kids in prayer, this is something I started recently praying with them before I put them to bed. Make me more like you. That is the resonance in the heart of all the children of God that I I don't want to just know God in an intellectual sense. I want to be like Him. I want Him in that greatest sense to be like Him. 
And that's what it looks like in our lives. That's why it says it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Peaceful righteousness. You lack peace in your home? Absorb the biblical wisdom about discipline and put it to work. We also saw that discipline produces assurance. And this assurance, I believe, leads to righteous living. Only when we're fully aware of the fact that God has made us sons and daughters and we are secure in that relationship will we have the proper root of motivation to live righteously. So, an encouragement to imperfect parents like myself. All discipline, when done in the way this text defines it, has the power, not that it will, but it has the power to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Similar to preaching the gospel. When the gospel is preached, the power is there as the Holy Spirit is working to convert people, to bring the new birth. And when we follow God's wisdom, not that it always will, but the power is there to bring the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's encouraging. And know this, that the Bible doesn't just throw around the term righteousness willy-nilly. This is an important, central term for all the authors of Scripture. The gospel enables us to have right standing before God. We, We are counted righteous, Paul says. But that's not the type of righteousness being talked about here. That is our justification. We are considered or counted righteous before God. Discipline doesn't produce justification. That's not what he's saying. But there is a practical righteousness that is the result of the discipline of the Lord and the discipline that we use in our, even in our own homes. There is a righteousness that comes in our living. This is called sanctification. The discipline of God is the root cause of our sanctification, of our being made more holy, more like God. And it's all found in union with Christ through faith. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those Who are those? Those are the sons of God that he disciplines in this way. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives as we are trained by it. So a few final questions. What effect is the discipline of the Lord having on you? Is it making you hard-hearted, bitter? Is it making you see his hand only in the solution and not in the trial for your good? What effect is the discipline of the Lord having on you? Number two, are you modeling your discipline in your home after the discipline of the Lord? It's a question for all of us, and all of us need to grow in that, especially me. Number three, are you setting your eyes on Jesus, willing to turn away from every idol to gain him? That is the reason God brings this discipline into our lives, to help us turn away that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, that we would see him and be drawn to him. Number four, are you eager to share the holiness of God? And is that showing in your life with an increase in righteous living? And lastly, are you struggling 
to see the love of God in the hardship that you're enduring. Just know that he is treating you as sons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for treating us as sons, that you haven't left us. We are not illegitimate children. Give us the faith that we need to see your work in your life. Even as Joseph cried out, you intended it for evil, brothers, but God intended it for good. Help us have that same faith. We would understand how you work in our lives and be done with sin, be done with idols, be done with the flesh and pursue you with an eager expectation of sharing your holiness. And might that show and shine forth even now as we bear fruit with the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.